Growing up as a kid in the 80s and 90s, my first video game system was a Nintendo. That Nintendo. The Nintendo Entertainment System, NES. It's like Super Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt, Zelda. Yeah, there it is. There's, there's my original Super Mario Brothers. I love the NES system because it was simple. The controllers just had a few buttons and I could control them. Nowadays, that's a whole other sermon on how complex video games are with 15 buttons. I can't do it. Different sermon. <laughs> Go ahead and keep that up there. The original Nintendo entertainment system was played on cartridges like this that you would you toggle back and forth. You take the cartridge, Go back, go back, and you put it in here, right? And you play your game. And every now and again, if you grew up playing on these, the game wouldn't work, and it would glitch, or it would freeze. And so there's this button right next to the power button here that's the reset button. And so though you would lose your progress in the game, every now and again you had to hit the reset button and get you playing again. But those that played this long enough also realized that sometime you couldn't get the game to work even with the reset button or powering it on and off, and it required you to open up the system and take the cartridge out, and you would blow on it. and then you put the cartridge back in. And it works, magic. Most everyone who grew up on this knew that that process <laughs> would clear up a world of problems. And nowadays, when the computer doesn't work, or if Wi-Fi doesn't work, or if your phone doesn't work, I always ask, have you turned it off yet? And I'll admit that there are times that I've taken my phone <laughs> and I've done that too. My point is, sometimes you need a reset. Again, whether it's a power button, a reset button, turning it all the way off and back on again, blowing it out with your mouth, Sometimes the way you are going about things needs to be changed, altered, reset. Which brings us this morning to prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, last week I introduced our new fall series on the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And last week I talked in context as we begin to dive into the Lord's Prayer this fall, I noted that before Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, Jesus taught his disciples how not to pray. If you were here last week, and if you remember, Jesus taught them not to pray like the hypocrites for showy attention to be seen. Jesus taught them not to pray like the pagans with impressive oration as though they would be heard by their many words. 
Jesus also said, you don't need to dispense information to God because the Father already knows what you need before you ask. So you are already seen and you are already heard and he already knows what you need before you ask. So Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites or the pagans or the information dispensers. Pray like Christians. And then he says, pray then. When you pray, pray like this. And if you've been with us every week, we pray the Lord's Prayer every single week. And many of you love it. Some of you are uncomfortable with praying the same prayer every single week. Our hope, though, is that this prayer gets into our bones and we understand that there is no formation without repetition. And so as we repeat this prayer and pray this prayer, it is also good for us to know what we're praying. So we're gonna walk through the Lord's Prayer this fall, line by line, and Jesus invites us to pray. Here's where he begins. The very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, the very first move of the Lord's Prayer, the reset of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus puts God in the center of our prayers, which may not sound like a big deal, but it is. This is the reset. Prayer rightly begins with God. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open up. If not, I have it here on the screen in English and Spanish and Swahili. Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus says, again, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't pray like the pagans and don't feel like you have to get everything out because your father knows your needs before you ask. Pray then like this, he says, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In Spanish, Padre Nuestro que estás en los cielos. In Swahili, Baba Yetu Ulie Mbinguni. Huh? Maybe not. But these words, this prayer, is really helpful for us. And there's a reason why we're going to slow down. You're like, really, a line a week? (laughs) Yeah, to slow down. These words, this beginning of the prayer, I would argue, decenters and recenters things for us. There's something that's being kicked out of prominence, and then something else put back into place that needs to be understood. Our Father in heaven. Those are the words we're gonna do today. Our Father in heaven. And I'm gonna start at the end first and work our way back. So we're gonna start with heaven. This is a reset, I would argue, about eminence, fame, recognizing superiority, heaven. Uh, The word actually uh, in the text is plural, it's heavens, literally. 
our Father in the heavens. And when Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven or our Father in the heavens, it's not as though he's just giving us the address of God, like pray P.O. Box heaven. And it's not as though really even about geography either, like heaven is this place far away where God is trapped and confined while we live here on earth and we're on earth and he's in this galaxy far, far away. I love how theologian J.I. Packer explains this idea of a God in heaven. He says, when the creator is said to be in heaven, the thought is that he exists on a different plane from us rather than in a different place we can begin to think that God is really, really super far away. But it's not about place as it is so much about a plane. He's outside of time and space. So naming him, praying to him as a father in heaven, Jesus is contrasting him with our earthly fathers, for sure, and maybe even culturally against other earthly gods. But again, I think he's decentering something important that needs to be decentered. When we begin praying, our Father who art in heaven, if you like the King James, our Father in heaven, we are reminded that earth and everything that we can see isn't the center of the universe. Because that's often how we as Americans live our lives, right? That earth is the center of it all and, and the things that we can scientifically taste, touch, feel, like the things that we see that are really, really real are the center of the universe. And as we pray our Father in heaven, our eyes are lifted up and we are reminded that this world is not the center of the universe, but God is. Further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis writes. We live in a world right now that is fixated on earth. And I'm not trying to say that we should forget earth. Earth is good, good creation. This is, our, this is the home we've been given. And yet the center of all existence is not our secular age. We live in a world that tries to say that God has no place in our world that life is explained apart from God. And we begin to think that we are the center of the world and that all that there is is defined by me. And this reminds me, oh, no, no. (laughs) The earth is good. It is a gift. But the earth is not ultimate. Who are we talking to as we pray? A God in heaven. A God on a different plane the uncreated creator of the universe. I'm just reminded of these beautiful Old Testament passages. Psalm 113, the psalmist says, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? Who humbles himself? to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. He is the one who rules. He is the one who reigns. Isaiah chapter 40, 
Verse 12, I won't read the passage to you, but if you read this section of Isaiah 40, we're reminded all the ways in which God is great. Isaiah tells us that he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. Again, it's metaphorical language, but you get the point when you can measure the waters in the hollow of your hand, and he marks off the heavens with the span. He weighs the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance. It says that nations are like a drop in the bucket. Nations. It's to drop in the bucket. The coastlands, Isaiah says, like fine dust. And then verse 18, he ends this little rant (laughs) of the majesty and the grandeur of God. And he says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Job in the Old Testament, after devastating personal loss, after chapters of asking God questions and challenging God's authority. Job 38, God comes back to him and says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? To quote one pastor, he says, the Bible is filled with the revelation of God's nature. He is merciful, long-suffering, patient, faithful, compassionate, He is jealous, an all-consuming fire, and he is love. He is kind, all-knowing, all-powerful, and present everywhere. He is eternal, the alpha and omega, beginning and the end. He is meek and humble, just and righteous, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Our Father in heaven Majestic and mighty, powerful and perfect. The God who made all things with a word. And he holds all things together by the word of his power. The God of the Exodus plagues. The God of Mount Sinai's thunder. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Mount Calvary. The God who saves and redeems. As we pray, our Father in heaven, our eyes are lifted up to the great one with eminence, supremacy, all power, all authority, all dominion, all glory. Heaven reminds us of the otherness of God. He's the God of infinity fame and a recognized superiority overall. But that's not all that's there in the prayer, is there? So we, we have this reset that reminds us that this created world is not the center of the universe, but God is this great one, the God of all infinity and eminence. And then also we pray our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. And it's a reset, not just of eminence, but a reset of intimacy. 
That that same God, this same one who gets our eyes up and off of ourselves and off of the world into all the splendor of who he is, that same God is the one that we're invited to call Father. Talk about a shift. Father. Now, I know that term may raise some challenges for many of us in the room because of earthly fathers. There are some that have a hard time like engaging God, praying to God as father because they have a picture of a dad that just makes it hard. Maybe your father was absent Maybe your father was emotionally detached, distant. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe you never even knew your father. Not an example of what a father could or should be. And that leaves a mark. I would understand for some why we would be gun shy to pray this way. But may you hear, may you hear the heartbeat of God in this. Because when Jesus teaches us about the Father and he reveals to us about the Father and tells stories about the Father. In fact, we're told that if you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus because Jesus makes him known. But as he talks and teaches and explains the Father, this is what he's trying to get, us, to get across to us. Jesus wants us to understand the beautiful heartbeat of God. He wants us to understand his posture toward us. This God is Father. And he is marked in his character by covenant faithful love. And the invitation to pray to God as Father because of who Jesus is and what he's done is an invitation for us to pray as those who are beloved. But the same God who would measure the waters in the hollow of his hand would be the same one that we get to call in intimacy, Father. I know many people emphasize um, that calling God Father is more of a New New Testament phenomenon, and that's true if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, God is called Father 65 times about. And then you read the Gospel of John, there's another 100 times in the Gospel of John. So like 165-ish times in the New Testament Gospels is God called Father, as opposed to about 15 explicit times in the Old Testament. So something is explicitly shifting in the New Covenant through the work of Jesus. But I actually find that the first reference to the idea of God as Father is actually helpful to understand this idea of praying to God as Father. And that's actually in the book of Exodus. Let me take you there real quick. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. This is the first general reference to God in a father-like way in the Bible. So again, the book of Exodus. This is right before Moses returns to Egypt where the people of Israel are enslaved. And right before the plagues and the big Pharaoh confrontation, 
When God is instructing Moses about what to do when he heads to Egypt, this is what God says. Exodus 4, 22, God speaks to Moses and says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So I'll grant you the word father is not used in this verse, but the idea is loud and clear. Here's what God says to Moses. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son, and I want my son to go free. This is God saying, I am the father, Israel is my son, and I'm not going to put up with my children being in slavery. They will not live as slaves, they will live as sons. And now you begin to get at the father heart of God that isn't content to leave us as slaves, but wants to rescue us and deliver us into the freedom of sonship. Uh, N.T. Wright, another scholar, says, for Israel to call God father then was to hold on to the hope of liberty. The slaves were called to be sons. The slaves were called to be sons because they had a father. So to pray our father in heaven is to tap into Israel's story. And to pray God as Father is to tap into an expression of intimacy, relationship, and connection. I know we use the word intimacy a lot in our church, and so I'm like, that just feels really milk toast and sappy. There is nothing milk toast and sappy about the intimacy that God has for you. And to pray God as father in the intimacy of a son, a daughter to a father is to identify with the great rescuer and the great rescue. It's to say that the same one who was protective over his firstborn Israel as slaves in Egypt is the same heartbeat that beats for you to rescue you. The father would not stand for Pharaoh to keep his son enslaved. So he saw their needs, he heard their cry for help, and in the fullness of time, enough was enough, and the father acted on behalf of his children. To cry father is the cry of family with all that comes with it. That that great and mighty creator God would actually give a rip about you. My first few days being a father are forever etched into my memory. Even though it's some 21 years ago. I remember the scene in the hospital when I first held my daughter. I remember the first bath. Felt a little awkward. I remember the first pictures that were taken. I remember holding her in my arms for the first time. I remember my, my fatherly ignorance of putting her in the sleeping bag with me when the nurse was out of the room, and the nurse came back in the room, took her temperature, and said, she is boiling, what happened? I was like, oh, should I not put her in the sleeping bag with me? 
Like, that's a big no-no, I guess. Babies don't go in sleeping bags. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> and then I remember the day that we took her home. And we packed her in the new car seat, figured out how to get the car seat in the car. We were driving our new, at that time, new Volkswagen Jetta was our big family wagon. And I took off behind the wheel. And you can ask Callie, after saying goodbye to the nurses and pulling out on the road for the first time, I felt something new in me. I felt a new sense of protectiveness. I started yelling at the cars that were around me because there was a car on the freeway. He was driving erratically. And no joke, I yelled, come on, we got a newborn in here. He didn't listen. And I had driven my car many, many times, but all of a sudden I was well aware that I had a baby in the back of my car and there was something in me as a father that was stirred up to protect her, a father's heart. Now again, I'm not a perfect father. I have many flaws, but I've tasted that, a father's love, a father's protection a father's desire for their child to be safe. It's intimacy, desire to be together, a desire to help when I can, a desire to rescue when needed, to protect, to do whatever it takes. And this, Jesus says, this is where prayer actually begins to realize our Father in heaven brings the majesty and the grandeur and the greatness of God down to here and now to you, to me. That just as the father rescued the firstborn son Israel from slavery in Egypt, and just as the father raised his firstborn Jesus from the dead, that by faith the same would be true of you, that the father would actually do a work of saving you from your sins and bringing you close to himself. That you may have access to the God that made you. He actually cares, he sees, he hears, he knows, and he's willing to do something about your life. Our Father in heaven. Some of the great themes of the scripture, God as Father, now through the work of Jesus the Son. I'm just gonna read off some of these beautiful scriptures that say it better than I can. Galatians 4, 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That the spirit would cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father, John 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
1 John 3, 1, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Not because of our will or our good doing or our pulling our life together, but because we've been born again through the finished work of Jesus. Born again by his Spirit. His Spirit poured out into us that we can now cry out, Father, Father, it's a reset of intimacy. That's what you're made for. Free gift of grace. Last shift, last reset, last phrase, our. You know, this prayer has been prayed for centuries. And if I had to guess, like millions of times, this is probably not an overstatement. How many people have prayed this prayer? Maybe even billions, I don't know. Maybe you've prayed it many times before. But have you ever noticed, grammar alert, there's no first person singular pronouns in this prayer. Sorry to give you PTSD from English grammar class, but first person singular versus first person plural First person singular, I. First person plural, we. Oftentimes we think of prayer as being a solo venture between me and God, and the individual is definitely involved. But the Lord's Prayer is a corporate prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a communal prayer. The Lord's Prayer is our prayer. Our. This is not a me and mine prayer. This is a we and our prayer. I mean, look at the language, it's there. Our Father, lots of ours. Our Father, not my Father. So in the same way that praying about heaven decenters earth and the created things from the center of the universe, praying our decenters the individual. And in praying this way, we place ourselves in all of the company of all who pray. David alluded to this this morning. It's like he read my notes. We pray in the company of all who pray. First and foremost, as we pray, our Father, we are placed in the company of Jesus. Jesus prays, our Father. We pray, our Father, through the work of Jesus on the cross, his life, death, resurrection, ascension. He has made a new and living way that we too can call God Father. He is our great older brother who has invited us to join in in the family of God. And we place ourselves in the company of Jesus and we pray with Jesus. We pray our Father just like Jesus prayed our Father. And we also place ourselves in the company of all who have ever prayed this prayer. It's in the company of other people. We pray our Father in the company of other churches. We pray our Father in the company of other countries and nationalities, other people, places, eras, and ages. Before there was a smartphone, before there was electricity, before the United States was ever conceived in the minds of our founding fathers, people prayed our Father. 
all the saints of old, all the countries of the world, all the people who are being redeemed by Jesus from every tongue and tribe and nation pray our Father. And we're included in this great hour. And me, I am not the center of the universe. He is. And we, by grace, are welcomed in. All of which to say, Jesus includes lots of people on the prayer bus. He shatters with this prayer the hyper-individualism of our day. The hour in our prayer is very un-American in this sense, where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Our Father, we have tasted of a common grace, not by our own works, invited in to be numbered among the redeemed. Our Father, Not just my Father, but our Father. Not just my prayer, but our prayer. Not just my God, but our God. Not just my local tribal deity, but the God and Father of the universe. He's the God of other denominations. He's the God of people who talk and worship very differently than I do. He's the God of the dancers, the tambourine players, and the flag wavers in worship. And he's the God of the contemplatives who sit in silence. He's the God of the rich cathedrals and the God of the sawdust tent revivals. He's the God of the black American church and the God with high church liturgy and robes. He's the God of the activists and the pietists. He's the God of the American megachurch and the hidden huddle of the Chinese cell church. Our Father, our Father, by grace we have been placed in a great company. As we sang this morning, the saints and the angels say, holy, worthy, our Father in heaven. Good old Eugene Peterson says, the creator is not just my God, or of my group, God is the maker and lover of every single person on earth, past, present, and future, and when we pray, we join a motley, global, diverse, historic family. Mm -hmm. Motley, global, diverse, historic family. So this reminds me, this is a reset of my identity, corporate identity. The individual is not the center of the universe. Paul Jones is not the center of the universe. Reality Church is not the center of the universe. And the beauty of communities, we get to speak back that which is true and join, again, millions around the world who say there is a God who has made himself known in Jesus and opened up access to our Father in heaven. So I know just a little line, just a few words, rich in meaning, rich in meaning. Hopefully a helpful needed reset. So here's my question to you, not just to be a people of information, but of transformation. Like, which is hardest for you to pray in this? Is it, is it the hour? Is it the, oh yeah, I just, I'm really focused on the me, and I need to reset to a collective identity? Is it speaking to God as Father, and experiencing his love and a protective intimacy that just doesn't... F- 
feel like I know how to engage him that way? Or is it praying to the God in heaven with his vast greatness? Have we, have we boiled God down, shrunk God down to size and forgotten about who he really is? The first line of the Lord's Prayer invites us to praying wider and closer and bigger. I'll go ahead and do this quote. One last quote, and I'm going to have you stand up. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about a church is her idea of God. What is God like? Our Father in heaven. Can you go back a slide to the questions? I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we close, if you're able to stand. And here's, here's the exercise, Kyle and, and the worship team are gonna come up and lead us, but here, here's just the exercise I wanna invite you to today. We're gonna give us about 30 seconds of quiet, which may feel like a long time to you. But I'm gonna invite you to use your hands this morning uh, to respond to God in answering these questions. Of Jesus, I want you to teach me how to pray, and here's the place where I need the most help. And if it's with the hour this morning, Go ahead and just put your, your arms, your hands out. I'm like, yeah, I need to have a, I need to pray wider. Or if, if for you it's a, a question of trying to understand and pray to God as Father, go ahead and just put your hands on your heart. Asking to understand his identity as Father. Or if it's understanding his greatness, you can put your hands up. So I'm just going to invite you in 30 seconds. Again, no one has to, and you're not have to, like, who's doing what? This is between you and the Lord. Like, honestly, like, God, I need, I need to learn how to pray our Father. I'm going to put my hands out here. Or I need to understand you as Father. I'm going to put my hands here. I need to just understand your eminence and greatness. So I'm going to put my hands up to you. So I invite you. Holy Spirit, come. Help us engage you. Help us keep company with you, O oh God. And even in our little things like putting our hands somewhere, may it be an, an outward expression of where we are right now. Help us, our Father in heaven, to understand our collective identity. Help us understand, O oh Father, your heartbeat for us. Help us, O oh great God, understand your greatness.
Spirit of the living God (laughs) blow out the dust within. Reset our hearts to you. Father, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.